Thanks, Kim. I have always dreamt of being a barista, so maybe it will be my time. Hey, great to be with you guys. Um, as Kim said, my name is Jeff. I'm um, uh, one of the pastors here on, on staff at Mariners, and it is really good to be with you guys. If, uh, if you haven't yet joined us for some of, this, um, some of this series, it's been really cool. And it is called The Life of Adventure. If you were here at week one, Mike started us off here at Mission Viejo talking about the unpredictable sort of nature of God. That while we want him to kind of follow a cause and effect sort of path in our lives, he, he really doesn't seem to do that as much as we'd like him to. He seems to be a little bit more, a little less linear, I guess is a better way to say it. And then last week we talked about the hiddenness of God. We talked about how while God might be omnipresent, might be present everywhere, there are times in which the Bible describes him manifesting his presence really kind of up close. And sometimes that presence isn't always felt by us, that we feel distant from God. And we kind of talked about that a little bit. But we're in the third week of the series. Hopefully this has been something that's been challenging to you, encouraging. Hopefully you're beginning to find a better picture of who God is um, in, this, in this time. So let's do this. Before we jump into the rest of this series or the rest of this message, why don't we spend some time and just pray and then we'll get into it, okay? <clears throat> Jesus, we acknowledge that you are present. And Lord, we are, um, gosh, we are, we are convinced that we need you. Lord, for some of us in this room who need comfort, would you bring comfort to them? For others of us in this room who need to be provoked or challenged or encouraged or prodded, would you do that? God, we um, pray against fear and intimidation. We pray for boldness and faith. And God, we give to you just a moment of stillness and of quiet in our week, that our hearts might be tuned to you. So just for a moment, would you take the silence and the stillness to hear from God? Lord, we believe that you are speaking and that you desire for us to have an experience with you that is real and honest. And so we pray you'd reveal yourself today. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Um, well, if you need a Bible, someone holding a stack of them would love to give you one of them. And sort of the only sort of asterisk next to that sort of statement, if you need a Bible, is that um, if you have a stack of them already at home that you might have stolen, you know, just don't take another one. But if you need a Bible, you can take one home with you. Like, that's totally okay. If you don't have a Bible and you're like, I don't know where to buy one or what to do or how do I get one of these, you can just take it. If you do have a stack at home, just show up next week with a whole stack and just start passing them out like you just were part of the team the whole time and no one will even know the difference, you know? So go ahead and do that. Um, but um, last week after I taught, we were, I took my kids to Disneyland. We, um, we, we asked them, we said, hey, you guys, do you want to do, do like a couple little parties for you guys? Like, you know, do a party at the park or something like that for you guys? Or do you guys want to combine all of your, you know, what we would spend on your birthday into one super cool family party? And they were like, yeah, let's do that. So instead of having the, you know, pin the tail on the donkey, which I don't know anybody's done that in the past 40 years, but instead of having that party at the park, you know, we were going to go take our kids, just us, and we're going to go to Disneyland, and then we're going to spend the night in the hotel on Sunday night, and then um, we took them out of school for the next day and spent the whole day in the party. It was an awesome birthday party. It was killer. But it was small. So Sunday night, after the church service, we get in the car, we're going to Disneyland, 
and we're meeting some of our friends there who are going to be able to hang out with us on Sunday. And um, we ha- I have this conversation with my eight-year-old, who is the, he's the oldest of my kids, and he's the most cautious, and he's the most timid. And when you go to Disneyland, right in front of you is always these sort of little challenges for, a, for an eight-year-old to sort of begin to sort of test out their level of adventurousness and their level of sort of like courage. And so, of course, it's all these rides. So we're standing next to a ride, and I go, buddy, I think you're ready for this. I don't know, Dad. No, buddy, I think this is going to be awesome. I mean, I, I really, you love this kind of stuff. No, I don't. I go, well, that's only because you haven't been on it yet. I'm, I, I, go, I go, you don't know that you don't like it at all because you haven't been on it. And he goes, well, how do you know that I'll, I go, I goes, uh, I go, you don't, I go, you don't even know that you'll, you, if you, how do I say this? How did I say this? It was a great argument. You don't even know if you won't like it because you haven't been on it. And he goes, well, how do you know that I will? I, I don't know. <laughs> and he's right. I didn't know if he'd like it. I just thought that he would. And then we're having this conversation. We're pretty much at an impasse where I say, what you want, what you're talking about that you want is to be able to do these things with some of your buddies, some of these rides that are really fun and exciting and whatever. But then, you know, when we get there, you're kind of like backing off a little bit. And so what you're saying to me is you want to make sure that whatever we're going to do, there's absolutely 100% assurance that it's not going to be dangerous or you're not going to feel afraid or be nervous at any moment. And yet, you still want this adventurous thrill of a thrill ride. And maybe that's something that we kind of tend to do in our faith. We want to have this rich, full life that the Bible talks about, and yet we don't want to have the experience of any danger or fear or sort of uncertainty about it. I think that we sort of begin to become very pragmatic about Jesus, right? We love the idea of Jesus who smooths things out, who kind of uh, uh, deals with danger, who makes me feel good, who comforts me. We like all of that stuff. But the moment when sort of the adventurous kind of faith begins to take shape and it actually requires faith, we actually start to backpedal a little bit. We actually start to wonder like, well, maybe, you know, maybe this isn't so wise, Because the adventure of faith is one in which we don't have all the answers, where everything's not perfectly spelled out for us, and there aren't guarantees that everything is going to work out the way we hope it would. We want to believe that if God's good and I commit to him, I won't have to experience danger or be afraid or be wounded. And the more insidious version of this sort of experience, if you grew up in the church, is one in which you sort of have this, the experience of, I experience pain because I'm not committed enough. Oh, the reason why this is happening to me is because I didn't go to church enough times as a kid or don't have all the books of the Bible memorized or whatever. You know, like those are all kind of things we start to play with ourselves. But the reality is the adventurous kind of life of faith is one that isn't always smoothed out. And when if you read the Bible, it's kind of even more confusing because you have these, these powerful metaphors for God. You have words like shield and tower, and you have words like fortress, all these protective words. At one point, the Bible even compares uh, uh, the God to a, a mother bird who puts her wings over her roost to kind of you know, protect them. We love all of that stuff. But then there's also this picture of God who's kind of prodding people to do things they weren't really sure they could do. A God who's forcing people to be in situations that are unfamiliar at times. A God who does things that are crazy, like telling people to part with their money. It's like, why are you crazy? There's a God who's leading people into deserts and telling them to give up things that are familiar. And this is the kind of God we're sort of faced with. One who is called shield, protector, 
fortress and also one who is calling people to a life they can't yet fully see. If you want to turn your Bible to Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is completing, this is the end of the, the sort of his long sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. And he's in, the chap- in chapter 7, he's beginning to sort of tell people about some warnings, things they got to watch out for, things they have to consider. And he even talks a little about judgment and forgiveness. And there's this one little metaphor he gives, starting in verse 13. And it's very short, and it's not a real complicated one. But here's what it says, Matthew 7, 13. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, And broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Now, this is a pretty simple, it's not like this is a complicated, what does he mean by a narrow road? I'm not familiar with this term. It's not like this is a hard kind of idea to get your head around. There are big roads, like a 405 freeway, and there are little hiking trails. That's all we have to kind of, that's, that's all you need. Now, what's interesting, though, is that the word narrow which you wouldn't know necessarily, is the word flebo. Just think Tim Tebow, but few little flebo, okay? And it's a word that has its roots in this sort of expression of to press as grapes. In other words, like to squash grapes. And the idea here is that Jesus is saying that you can't really, if you're serious about following me, it's not something that will make sense to everybody else. It will be adventurous because the conventional wisdom will say, this is a little bit crazy, you couldn't just sort of happen upon me. You couldn't stumble into sort of following me. Like, hey, I didn't realize where I was, and I guess everybody else is doing it. I guess I'm following Jesus now. That's not really possible. In fact, the description is of a narrow road such that only one person could go through at a time. Even to use the idea of a wine press or a press for grapes is that you'd have to actually squeeze through it, and it wouldn't be necessarily all that comfortable. When we pull our super cool minivan into our garage... Uh, why are you laughing? It's awesome. Um, it has automatic doors and 186 cup holders. But we pull into our garage, and because it's so full of all kinds of stuff, you know, bikes and scooters and, you know, bike ramps and whatever else is in there, and for me to get out on the driver's side, if you pop open the door, you know, again, we have automatic doors. I know you're jealous. Uh, but the automatic doors pop open, and for, for me to get through it, I'm too too big of a person to fit through that little gap there between bike and everything else, danger, lawnmower and everything else, and the door. So the kids get out, and then I have to like stand there while the door closes so I can get by. Does that make sense? This is the kind of idea we're showing here. Because what we want when we envision faith is one in which sort of the end of the little kid's soccer game, where it's like all the parents make the tunnel. Woo! And the kids run through. Yay, yay! Get a box juice and a granola bar. Woo, woo! That's what we kind of imagine a sort of narrow road to look like. But the picture is one of a wine press, where it's really tight, where it looks like, are you sure you want to go down that? Nobody else is going down that way. Yeah, this is the way I'm supposed to go. And Jesus says this kind of life, this kind of unconventional thinking, this kind of courageous, are you sure you really want to do this kind of life, is the life that leads to life. The life that we really want, the life that we hope we would have. And this kind of thinking, this sort of courageous, you know, kind of faith, adventurous kind of life, isn't invented by Jesus. Jesus is continuing the story of God calling people to live out this sort of narrow, unconventional sort of way of thinking, this sort of other way kind of mentality that he's been doing for all along. If you would, if you want to turn to Numbers chapter 13, we're going to kind of take on a really famous story here. But to give you a sense of what's going on as you're turning in your Bible there, there's the Israelites who are God's people 
have been in captivity in Egypt for 400 years. They have been crying out to God, oh God, we hate the slavery here. We're so tired of our slave masters. If you really are God, come rescue us. God says, I hear your cry. Here comes Moses. Here comes some plagues. You guys can wander out into the, we'll just, we'll take care of the Egyptians and you guys can wander out into the desert. We'll take care of you. And you'll, you know, we'll, we'll, you'll walk through this Red Sea, the Egyptian army. Will be it's awesome. This is all the kind of stuff that's sort of going on there. Now they've been wandering in the desert for a couple months. And they made a quick stop off at this place called Mount Sinai for some official sort of God business. That gets taken care of. And now they're about to go into this land that God had promised them. They've been in slavery. Now we're going into the land of freedom, the promised land. So here's what happens. This is uh, Numbers chapter 13. The Lord said to Moses, send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites from each ancestral tribe and one of its leaders. Now, just real quickly, the next, like, I don't know, 15, verse, 15 verses or so are naming all the leaders, like all these people, so-and-so from the tribe of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, like, and most of them won't make sense. The only two that really matter are the, a guy named Caleb, he's awesome, and there's also another guy named Joshua, or Hosea, but his name gets changed to, you know, Joshua later on, and that's all you need to know. Those two guys are awesome, everybody else, you'll figure out in a little bit how awesome they are. Okay, here we go. Now, these are the best and the brightest. God says, take the guys who hear from me, who follow me, who are courageous, the people respond to. I want those guys. Give me those guys. And we're not talking about just sort of like the, the prize attended at Chuck E. Cheese, you know, like, you know, like not just like, well, you look like you're available. You've got to make a career choice here. Are you sure you want to stay at Chuck E. Cheese? You want to come? It's not that. It's we're taking the best and brightest. And we got not, sorry, if you work at Chuck E. Cheese and you're the prize person, I just realized that's kind of insulting. I just want to say thank you for the work that you do. <laughs> Dang it. Okay, so anyway, he takes the best and the brightest, and he says, I want you to lead the people. Okay, this is what happened, so I'm going to skip down a little bit now. And here's kind of their, re- their instructions here, verse uh, 17. When Moses sent them to explore Canaan, he said, go up through the Negev and on into the hill country and see what the land is like and whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. Verse 19, what kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or fortified? How's the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Are there trees in it or not? And then there's this interesting thing. I don't know why this is there. It's just very funny to me. Remember, these people have been wandering around the desert. All they've been eating is what the Bible refers to literally in Hebrew as the word, what is it? Manna is literally translates, what is it? Like they don't know what to call it. They eat it every day. God provides it miraculously and they eat it. You know, what is it? I don't know. Enjoy it. Like this is what, that's literally what it translates as. So every day they've been eating, what is it? And now then Moses says, hey, while you're in there and scouting stuff out, do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land. This is in verse 20. I'll just bring some back. It was a season for ripe grapes. So you just imagine he's like, you know, while you're there, if you just happen to grab a few grapes, I'll test them out and make sure they're good. You know, this is kind of this interesting. Okay, so then um, these guys go out. It takes them 40 days. They wander out for 40 days, and they check out the land, and they come back. In, uh, here it is in verse, uh, let's see, where are we? Verse 27. They come back and give kind of their report. Here it is. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land into which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here's its fruit that you asked for. I know you're tired of the what is it, but here's something else delicious. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. You guys know how Anak is. He's, no, you don't. He's just, it just means they're giant people. That's all that means. The descendants of Anak are supposed to be huge people. So they're like, we saw the milk and honey. Here's the fruit, but the people are enormous. They're just huge people. We don't know what we can do. 
Now, I want you to do this. If you have your own Bible and you have a relationship with your Bible such that you underline things in it, I want to encourage that behavior. I want you to look at this, verse 27, because I want you to underline just one sort of clause in a sentence. Right after the sort of colon, if you have that punctuation, they gave Moses this account. We went, underline this, we went into the land to which you sent us. This is a really interestingly phrased sentence. Because what they're actually saying is something really much more subtle than you might pick up on, which is this. They don't say, remember, these are the leaders of the tribes. They don't say, we went into the land God had promised us. We went into the land that we had hoped to have, the land of our forefathers, the land that Abraham had hoped to have. They don't say anything about that. Instead, they say this. We went into the land that you had told us to go into, Moses. There's beginning to see, you're beginning to see a little bit of dissociation from God's promised future for them and their own hearts. We went to the land you told us to go into. They don't connect this land to any part of the greater story of God's provision. They don't talk about the liberation from Egypt. They don't talk about the tyranny of Pharaoh. They don't talk about anything. They don't use the words, we went into the land God promised us. Instead, they just say, we went to the land you told us to go into. And you're beginning to see a little foreshadowing of how these other leaders are going to start reacting here. One scholar says it this way. They reckon on entering the land without reference to the power and fidelity of Yahweh, God. They think about going to the land and going, well, it's just, you know, we just can't. People are huge. You know, the sons of Anak are there. They're, they're giant. They do have good grapes, though. We've, we've sampled the grapes. They just go, we can't, we can't do it. And they don't imagine a future in which God is going to be a part of their future. God clearly has abandoned us because we're out here right now in this little oasis waiting to go in there. We've been in the desert for a little bit. And he's going to abandon us eventually. And so they just kind of imagine. They sort of begin to picture then. We went to the land you sent us. And then verse 30. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land. We can do it. We can certainly do it. Now, there's some obvious courage sort of being expressed there. One is, the people are big and strong. We can take them. I mean, that's, that's the first most obvious courage, courageous thing. Like, well, God told us to do it. They're huge, but pff, we're here. We can do it. We're, just, we're there. We got it. We got these guys. No big deal. Very clearly courageous statement. But there's something else going on here, too. If any of you guys have ever taken a sociology or, or a psychology course, maybe in college, Maybe some of you are enrolled in those things. Maybe you've heard about some of this idea of group dynamics and group pressure. Some of you maybe heard of the Stanford Prison Experiments or maybe even Stanley Milgram's. Work, all this kind of stuff where you go, oh, this is making sense. These, this is exactly what's happening here. The power of the group in this situation is immense. When 10 people say, we should all not do something, and one person says, you know, I kind of disagree with you guys. There is as much courage in the resisting of the way everybody else is going as anything else. Psychologists will tell you that's like a one in ten person who can do that. Who will say, conventional wisdom says everybody's going a certain direction, but I say, I don't think that's right. Even when everybody, asks, when they're asked individually, is this the right thing to do? And they all would say, well, that's not the right thing to do. The idea that one person would stand up and say, I'm not doing it, is an incredibly rare person. This is a person on a narrow path. And you begin to see these people start to look at him and go, which is what happens when someone steps out like this. We kind of hate that guy. But, you know, we should probably kind of ostracize this person who's telling us that the way we're thinking isn't good enough, isn't right, or doesn't make sense. Verse 31. 
But the men who had gone up with him, meaning Caleb, said, we can't attack these people. They're stronger than we are. And then they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. Like, remember, they came back, it's flowing with milk and honey, it's awesome, here's the fruit. And then they start saying, well, I don't know, it's not really that good. I mean, it's weird, this oasis is nice, the desert's beautiful, the sunsets are wonderful. I mean, they start saying these kind of things. And they said, the land we explored (laughs) devours those living in it. (laughs) In other words, like, we're just walking, you don't even know, the land is so dangerous, we walk along, this this little crevice opens up and just eats people. The land is just terrible, it's horrifying. And the people who live there are of great size. There's all of this sort of fear beginning to start like forming up in them. And Caleb's saying, hey, look, you know what? It looks like we, this looks like kind of illogical and unsensible, uh, but, but God's called us to do this. We should do it. And they say, we don't care what God is calling us to do. Have you seen the people there? They're huge. We're terrified. Verse, chapter 14, verse 1. That night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, if only we had died in Egypt or in the wilderness. (laughs) Here we are camped out this place. God's given us a future which we can't see, in which we're supposed to go in and take this land that's been promised to us. We're supposed to go in and do it. And they say, you know what would be better? You know, I really did like Egypt. It was was nice. And... I just think dying by exposure to the elements in the wilderness would be great. <laughs> now, there's something about this that we have to point out, though. They know those experiences. They are familiar with the captivity in Egypt, and they've been wandering around for a couple months in the wilderness, in this desert. They know both of those things, but they don't know what it looks like to go into the land. You could even say that they're even intimidated at the prospect of true freedom. So they think, well, you know it would be better? Going back to Egypt, going back and maybe just dying in the desert. Uh, let, let me just um, keep reading here. Verse 3 and 4. Why is the Lord bringing us to the land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And, so, and they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Now, this is hilarious to me. But they, first of all, they're catastrophizing like to the nth degree. We're going to go in there. They're going to stab us. They're going to take our wives and kids. You know what we should do? Let's find a more fearful leader. You know, one of the things we need in our leader is a scared person. <laughs> and that scared person will run back to Egypt where we should go. That is a, that's a great plan. Let's stack hands on that. The mad, let's, get a, let's get a really terrified leader because that's what we want in our leader. Let's elect someone new or choose someone new who's as scared as we are and then we can go back home to slavery, to death. I think you could frame this entire sort of conversation that the Israelites are having with Moses and Aaron who's sort of his like mouthpiece guy, he talks for him. And, and Joshua and Caleb, I think you could frame all of this conversation with the Israelites and those four guys in, in one sort of framework. Idol worship. Like, we haven't talked about all of it. There's no idols even mentioned here, Jeff. Are you? Are we all there? I think when you start thinking about what does it mean to worship an idol or to follow a false god, to follow, to show any allegiance to any kind of god, it is to say, this is the way that my life will be directed. 
It will impact my attitudes and my behaviors, the way that I see other people, the way that I envision my future, the way that I think about how I should act in every single moment will be processed and directed through that God. That's how I'll show that God loyalty because it will affect the way that I live in the present. And these people serve a God. It's a very small God with a lot of empty promises. That is the God of fear. And they are a dedicated, very allegiant group who loves to serve the God of fear. And we're really no different than them. I mean, our culture is one that is absolutely saturated by fear. Probably some of the most, even to look at our advertising, probably some of the most memorable ads of the past 50 years have been ones that really sort of focused on trying to create fear in us. Years ago, if you're, if you're old enough, you remember there was a, um, I remember this when I was a kid, they had the, the whisk ad. And the whisk was, a, whisk was a, like a detergent you spray on. And the way that they talked about whisk was this thing that no one had ever heard of called ring around the collar. <laughs> See, some of us are like, what's ring around the collar? Some of us, you never have had any, you're not even old enough to know what this is. And here's the way the ad worked. They would open up this suitcase, and this guy would hold up a shirt, and they would zoom in on his collar, like right in here, which everyone could never see. I mean, none of you know what the inside of my collar looks like unless I like, literally go, can you see right there? Now, so they, they show this guy and he shows his collar and of course they, you know, enhance it, whatever. But then this like possessed devil voice comes out of the shirt saying, ring around the collar, ring around the collar. And it's like, oh my gosh. And they created us this, and I'd never even heard of this term as a kid. I, we didn't like use it in our house. And so of course what they would do is you grab the whisk and you could shoot the ring around the collar and it would go away. And they created in us the sense of like, you know, people are looking at you and they're trying to see inside your collar. And if they do, and they see ring around the collar, a devil will come out and bite their face. I mean, you don't know. It's just like, this is like the craziest stuff. And you're like, well, if I could just get the whisk stuff, then I could deal with this otherwise socially ostracizing kind of idea. Right? There's um, some, um, some of you have seen, this is a great ad. The, there's the, it's a Chase Bank ad where they have all these people at like this expensive dinner, you know, restaurant. And then one woman grabs a, um, a, gla- a wine glass, whatever, and she kind of taps her with her fork. Hey, everybody, ting, ting, ting. That'll be $37 a piece. And they all, instead of reaching for their wallet, clever little plot twist, they pull out their smartphones and beep, boop, beep, boop, beep, beep, beep. And they send over their money via magical you know, technology to this other person's account who just paid with their Chase, her blue Chase card, which is like the only colorized thing in the entire ad. And she pays, and then everybody just, and there's this, they show this one dude who's like, you know, he's like, pulls out his wallet and there's like cash flopping over. And they look at him like, cash, what century is this? I mean, it's just like, he's trying to pay with cash and he's like, well, I read Dave Ramsey's book and I was trying to do the envelopes. And I was just trying to do some, and, they, and they, the, his like girlfriend or wife, or whatever, is like, I got it. And she handles it and it's like, put that dumb cash away, you know? And there's this, there's this very clear sense of, if you have to pull out your wallet and pay with cash in a restaurant, your friends will hate you. I mean, it's just, just like, it's literally the kind of fear they're trying to create. Uh, maybe you, this is some of my favorite ads right now. There's, um, this is the Allstate Mayhem ads. Have you guys seen some of these? They're unbelievable. This is brilliant. So this is, this is my favorite one. This is the raccoon one. So go ahead and show this one. Oh, yeah, it's already funny. I'm a raccoon, <laughs> and this time in your attic has been the best week of my raccoon life. I'm digging, I'm nesting in this fluffy stuff. I've already had like four babies. I'm the smartest raccoon I know. And if you got your home insurance where you got your 15-minute car insurance, you could be paying for this yourself. 
So get Allstate. You can save money and be better protected from mayhem. Like me. Dollar for dollar. Nobody protects you from mayhem like Allstate agents. <laughs> Some of you are like, you know, I did hear a sound in my attic last night. It's probably a raccoon. And I'm, I'm like, I watch this, I'm like, I don't know, maybe we have a raccoon in our attic. And maybe it's having a good time in the insulation and, you know, having babies and scratching pipes or whatever it's doing up there. Maybe there's a whole fleet or gaggle of a raccoon. I don't know what do you call a bunch of raccoons. There's a whole crew. What are they? That's a nursery? A gaze? How did you know that? You work for Allstate, don't you? Yep. I knew it. A gaze. Spelled, spelled like like just gazing over the horizon because they have little sunglasses on. It's kind of the reason, huh? Yeah. Watch out for the gaze of raccoons living in your attic. But that whole idea is predicated on the idea that you don't know what could happen. They could be in your attic right now. Because you don't know, you should get some insurance from Allstate. Right? This is all based on fear. Procter & Gamble, recent, like this is, I don't know how long ago this was, they're trying to penetrate the, the Chinese market. And in China, I guess, that it's not really, like dandruff has never been a big deal. Like it's never been like a cultural sort of like thing that people were like, oh my gosh, bro. That's never been an issue. So Procter & Gamble realized we have a gold mine right here. So they launched a huge amount of ad campaigns explaining to the Chinese how they're dishonoring each other and their family. They're shaming themselves by having dandruff on their shoulders. And so you're welcome, Chinese, because we have head and shoulders for you. Here it is. They would have never even realized it until Procter & Gamble said, this is kind of a problem. It's scary. It's evil. But we have a solution. Aren't we nice? You know, I think we understand the idea of fear because we live in a culture that markets to us because of our fear. But we understand it in broader terms than that as well. You know, for some of you, your fear will manifest itself in sort of failure avoidance. That the worst possible thing that could happen to you is that you might try something and you would fail. This is something I connect with a little bit, a lot, all the time. Some of you have your fear show up in kind of control issues. Handling, making decisions, making sure everything is fine. That might be your way fear manifests itself. Some of you have perfectionism as part of your sort of fear manifestation. Some of you, your fear shows up in people-pleasing, that you begin to make unhealthy choices on the behalf of other, other people just so that they kind of like you. Others of us have fear that shows up in relationship decisions that we know we don't want to be in, but we'd rather be in those bad relationships than be alone. So we choose those. Some of us, our fear sort of shows up in our addictive behaviors that we use to numb the experience of fear itself. What is it for you? We understand fear. Fear, for as small of a God as it is, is a still pretty powerful, influential figure in our lives. The Israelites, as they're walking around, they have a history with God. They called out to him and he delivered them with plagues upon their oppressors. They walked out into the desert. They were fed the what is it every single day. They were up against this sea and an army you know, following behind them. And they walk through on the dry land and the armies get swallowed up in the sea. When they don't know where to go, there's a pillar of fire that guides them by day or by night. And by day they have a pillar of smoke. They know where to go because this God is showing up in huge ways. But they don't take their cues from that God. They take their cues from a smaller God, a little tiny God called fear, who threatens them and begins to make them 
worry. And they want what the result of all idol worship. They actually desire the thing that all idol worship leads, leads to. Slavery in Egypt or death. And they say, let's go back to Egypt. Slavery. Or wouldn't it be better if we just died of exposure in the wilderness? It'd be better for us to be slaves or to be dead than to face the possibility of what we can't see. So Caleb gets in their face. Verse 7 of chapter 14, he says this. The land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. Remember, they said they spread lies about how the land devours people. Verse 8. If the Lord is pleased with us, he'll lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and it will, and will give it to us. Only don't rebel against the Lord, and don't be afraid of the people of the land. In other words, Caleb's reiterating his point. Guys, we can take them. The land's awesome. Stop telling everybody it's not awesome. It's awesome. We're going in. I think we should do this. Now look at their reaction against courageous Caleb, verse 10. But the whole assembly talked about stoning them. Caleb, Joshua, Aaron, and Moses, they're going to kill them. They have, fear has such a grip on their lives, they kneel at the altar of fear to such a degree that anybody who expresses courage should be killed. You know, God's calling us to do this. You know, we probably should just kill these guys. You know, it'd be better to be back in Egypt or, you know, back in the desert where we could die. That just seems like a much better idea. Kill them. And the idea of faith and courage is so unpopular and so unconventional, it's, we're faced with this kind of decision ourselves. Because the world will move in a certain direction and we have to go, is this really, can we just coast along with this or is there some reason where we ought to actually start saying, no. Let me ask you, who, who is your God? Whether or not you've decided you're convinced about who Jesus is or you're you know, visiting here, you know, whatever. Let me just ask you, who is the one or who, what is it that's guiding your decisions, the way that you live your life? For so many of us who are immersed in a culture of fear, it's fear has actually become our God. It's the one that makes our, most of our decisions. And let me just ask you if you can identify that. And maybe you start saying, well, you know, I want the God to be my God then what is that God calling you to that's unconventional and generally regarded as absurd? That most people would say, that's just not the way we do it. Jesus is inviting us into that kind of life. This is the kind of per- Jesus is the person who says, you, know, you should do things like forgive people virtually endlessly. I mean, you should pretty much be a constant forgiver of people. And then he says things like, you, know, you probably should fight for your marriage, even if divorce is kind of an easier option. And he says, maybe you should give generously even in a bad economy. And he says, maybe that you you would give up your, your life that you know to follow me. Jesus says, seek out people that are lonely and lost, that have nobody else around them. I want you to seek them out and bring them into your own family. So they know what it's like to be a part of a family. And this is the kind of stuff Jesus is talking about. And it is not conventional. It does not make sense. And people say, are you sure you want to do that kind of stuff? So after this kind of exchange where they start, the people of Israel start getting a little upset, ready to kill Moses and Aaron and Caleb and Joshua, 
God and Moses have a conversation. God's like, I'm kind of done with these guys. I'll start something with you four. You guys, you four are awesome, but everybody else, I'm done with them. And Moses says, no, 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 let's not do that. He says, is there anything else you can do? And God goes, all right, here's the deal. I'm going to have you walk around a year for every day that you scattered out this land. So you get 40 years in the desert. That's the deal. And here's, so then Moses goes back to tell everybody what's going on. Verse 39, he says this. When Moses reported this to all the Israelites, they mourned bitterly. Now listen to this. Early the next morning, they set out for the highest point in the hill country saying, now we're ready to go up to the land God promised us. Surely we've sinned. (laughs) This is what my kids do when they get in trouble. You know what I mean? It's like, Scotty, do not kick your big sister. Scotty boy, do not kick her. And then there's this moment. You can tell the decision. Parents know this. There's that decision where it's like the kid looks at you in the eye like, you're not really serious, right? Kick. It's like, all right, buddy, time out. Let's go. You have a time out. Apologize to you. Oh, Dad, I'm so sorry. I never will. I'll never do that again. I promise I'll never kick anybody ever. You can, you can cut off my legs. I don't even need my legs anymore. I just, I just want to, I, I'm so sorry. And Molly, you're my favorite sister. She's your only sister, buddy. It doesn't matter. I love her so much, and she's the best. And I just, I'm so sorry. And, and they just fall apart like it, you just lit them on fire. You know, it's like, jeez, you know. You can sit there for five minutes and be fine. And this is kind of the idea. Those of you who don't have kids, it's like this. Officer, I promise I'll never, ever go another mile per hour over the speed limit in my life. I had a really tough day, and I didn't see the stop sign in the red and white. I'm colorblind. You know, whatever you want to try and say, there's something that you begin to, you kind of understand what's going on here. God's going, no, no, you're still my people, but you've got to wander around for a little while. And here's, this is what's crazy. Verse 41. So remember, they're trying to go up to the hill and start going into the country. But Moses said, what are you doing? my translation why are you disobeying the lord disobeying the lord's command this will not succeed do not go up because the lord is not with you you'll be defeated by your enemies for the amalekites and the canaanites will face you there because you've turned away from the lord he will not be with you and you'll fall by the sword yeah Moses, we get it keep reading verse 44 nevertheless and their presumption they went up toward the highest point in the hill country though neither moses nor the ark of the lord's covenant moved from the camp stop right there The appointed leader of God's people, the one who will speak to them, God's voice, the one who has led them out of captivity into the desert and into into this place where they're about to go to the promised land, is Moses. He is God's voice to the people among the people. And the the place where God resides, his manifest presence, if you were here with us last week, the way that God's presence is made manifest is in the Ark of the Covenant. Ark of the Covenant is at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark that melts all those guys' faces. That's that thing right there. It just means container. And in the Ark of the Covenant, among other things, are the Ten Commandments. And this is supposed to always go in front of the people. And what they're actually saying here is this. We want the land. We've changed our mind. We want the land. But we don't want God there. We'll take the land, but Moses and the Ark can stay behind. We don't need God in this land. We... We kind of have this impression at times, and I think it's actually an accurate one, that God kind of does this thing where he kind of messes up stuff that we kind of had going, that God is in some way sort of messing with us. We used to have this expression with our college ministry years ago uh, at the Irvine campus, where when people would get up to share a story about how God had kind of been working in their life, the way that that story was introduced was, here's so-and-so who's going to tell us about how God is messing with their life. 
That's how we would set it up. As if to say, I was headed this way and God got a hold of my life and he kind of messed some stuff up in the most beautiful way. But that messing up of stuff is a little tragic. I, I um, was listening to a, um, to a U2 song recently. It's a really not that widely known of a U2 song. Actually, Johnny Cash is the guest vocal on the song. And um, it's a song called The Wanderer. And I was so convicted by the words. It, starts, it says this. I stopped outside a church house where the citizens like to sit. They say they want the kingdom, but they don't want God in it. Two guys say, let's take the land in this sort of story. Everybody else says, I'd rather be a slave. I'd rather die. I'd rather go back to what I know than to face an uncertain future. And this is kind of where we are. The life of adventure is one in which there is a narrow path. One with a small gate and a small little way to walk. And it's pretty squishy in there. And it's pretty much sometimes has a feeling of being alone because everybody else is going a million miles per hour on a huge road. And yet there is a life God wants to give to us, but it can't be had just sort of by happenstance. You actually have to choose it. We have to choose it. And we have to act without the assurance that everything is going to be as we had planned it, hoped it would be. So I'm having this conversation with my son about this ride we're about to go on. And there's a couple different seats. There's, there's, there's a tandem seat, which you have to go on if you're shorter than, like, I don't know, three feet tall, which is like my three-year-old. And then there's, um, there's, a, there's all these other little solo seats. And all the seats, it's just like a, it's just, you've seen it at a carnival before. It's like a, looks like kind of like a top, and there's a bunch of little single-seat swings that hang down from long chains. And then as the thing starts to spin, they kind of go out, and kind of you get the centrifugal force. And it's, you know, it's not, it's not a very scary ride, except to my eight-year-old. It's terrifying. And he's like, Dad, I think I want to ride in the, like, you know, the, the like little pair seat, the, the one together. And I go, and again, I'm walking this really delicate, delicate balance between helping him take a next step and creating emotional scars, you know, like so. So I, I'm going, well, but I think you should go by yourself. Okay. And so there's his best friend in the whole world who's met us there right next to him. He's right here. And then his other like best friend, this guy's brother, are right there next to him. There's three in a row. And then my daughter and my wife are behind me, and my son, who's three years old, is right here. And I'm watching my eight-year-old just grab a hold of this, the, the thing. I mean, you can just watch the tension. You, just, you can just see his, I mean, just imagining his face, because I can see from the back of, you know, his back. It's just this, dear God, please let me live. I mean, it's just, this is kind of the way he's looking like. And he can't do the like, I just saw everybody else get off of this line and go and do it. He just can't do it. He's always thinking, I'm going to die. And so the thing starts to go, and I just see him tense up even more. And we start to go out, and my, my three-year-old, as this thing starts to spin, my three-year-old's got his hands out, woo, woo! I mean, if, if they let him surf that thing standing up, he would do it. I mean, he's like, yeah, you know. So I'm trying not to draw too much attention to that. I'm cracking up. He's got this, like, long blonde hair. It's like, woo! It's just like, it's awesome. My daughter, meanwhile, was crying, <laughs> holding on to my, my wife, Amanda. And then there's, uh, there's my son in front of me. And I see his buddy doing the human-powered flight thing, his hands out, yeah, like this. And I go... <laughs> And I yelled at my son, who's, again, death grip on this thing. Dylan, put your arms out. <laughs> and I can see him tense up even more. And I go, no, dude, try it. So we're going around. He does this right here. He's like, psh, psh, like, that was it. This was it. I'm flying. Not really. I love this. I'm terrified. 
But this is, that was the way, and then so, and for the rest of the ride, deep, deep microsecond of just, I'm, I'm living, I'm, this is all awesome, I'm scared. And this is the whole way you did the rest of the ride. And as the thing kind of glides around and finishes up, and we, you know, land where we're, you know, at the end of this thing, he gets, he gets off of the, the, like, gets out of the little chair, <laughs> and he has this look like he just completed the most heroic thing anybody's ever done in their life. Like he's a war hero in World War II, completed a strafing run over like German trains. I mean, it's just like, he just is like, he gives this look like, I kind of nailed that. You know, like, it's just like, yeah, buddy, you did. And he's just beaming, and so am I. I'm like, oh my gosh, you did it. You're awesome, dude. And his friends are like all excited about it. And I, and I have this moment where I begin to realize, and for him, it's expressed it differently. But I'm looking at him, and I'm like, fear didn't win. Fear didn't win. The voice of fear is talking to you all this time, but there was something so great about having this kind of this kind of experience of courage. And he says something to the effect of, I, I, he goes, Dad, some of these things I've never done before are really great. And I'm like, wait, say it again. Let me record that on my phone. Say, say it, say it, say it again. Of course, the music's like soup, all that obnoxious Disney music's too loud, and the lighting's terrible. You can't even hear what he said. But I'm like, you got it, buddy. Fear doesn't have to win. There is a life of uncertainty that's ahead of us that requires faith. And it requires courage. Would you do this with me? Would you close your eyes for a moment? Would you just, for a minute, just kind of consider a few things? Jesus, we invite you into this space. Or we confess that there are times where fear has become our God. Would you, right now, in this, just in this moment, would you maybe spend some time confessing how fear has shown up for you in your life? How it has dominated. How it has impacted decisions. Is it in some of the things we talked about in relationships and people-pleasing and control and fear of failure? What is it that God might be calling you to that requires him to be there? Something that might cause mostly fear, that most people would say, that's kind of insane. But that maybe there's a few who know you, who love you, who care about you, who listen to God's voice as well could say, this sounds crazy, but I think it's right. What is God leading you to? How do you want to respond? Do you choose fear? Or do you choose courage? Lord Jesus, we want to be people who are courageous. We do not want to be mastered by fear. We do not want to choose slavery or death. We want to choose life. Life that is life. Life that is full and rich life. We confess our fear. Acknowledge that it's real, but God, we pray that it would be silenced by the courageous acts of your people. Jesus, it is in your name, the powerful name, the courageous one that we pray. Pray these words set to music, this prayer set to music, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.